0: When we left off last week, we had seen the Babylonians conquer Nineveh. So we're going to do some map work today and get my handy-dandy map out here. And the Babylonians, which is, was this, this guy down here, he'd been, you know, working his way up the, the um, Tigris River. And last week we had seen him conquer the old capital, and then the Medes came over. They conquered Nineveh. The Medes and the Babylonians made a, a treaty. Well, they're... They didn't stop just because they conquered the capital city, all right? They're continuing to push this way. Well, as they, you know, when they conquered Nineveh, that was the, the actual sitting capital of the Assyrians. So the capital, the court had to move. So the Assyrians ran off, and they came over here to Haran. Where is it? Here, Haran, all right? Which is, um, still on this, on this trade route. And we, we saw that Pharaoh Necho from Egypt had begun to come up here to try to assist the Assyrians. Okay. So the Assyrians ran back to Haran. Well, it didn't, of course, the Babylonians are going to pursue them. So within two years, the Babylonians had pushed the Assyrians out of Haran and the Assyrians had fallen back to Karshemish, which is here. So they're just like losing, 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 losing. But you can see how much of the Assyrian Empire now is already Babylonian, which is why Pharaoh Necho was concerned. Because where are they going to go? They're going to follow that fertile crescent right down to Egypt. Okay, so Pharaoh Necho is, is on the move to, to help the Assyrians. And despite being warned by Pharaoh Necho that God's hand was in this, that, that the Pharaoh had told, I mean, that God had told Pharaoh Necho to go fight um, the Babylonians. King Josiah had ridden out for some reason, confronted Pharaoh Necho, and King Josiah was mortally wounded in the battle. So, at, but Judah lost far more than their beloved king. They, at that point, became a vassal state of Egypt they lost their nationhood for all intents and purposes. Now they haven't been carried off into captivity, but this is the beginning of the end. This is how it starts. And I'm I'm kind of reading between the lines here. But um it, it, it looks to me like at the point that Josiah was was um killed, Pharaoh Necho imposed a tribute, a really heavy tribute like 4 million dollars. All right, on the Kingdom of Judah, and the Bible doesn 't mention that he did that until about three months later in the timeline but but I actually think they just didn 't mention it when it originally happened. I think that that he inten- that he levied that tribute. it only makes sense he would levy the tribute when he conquered the the, the king so um, he, he installed well actually the people installed Jeho- a guy named Jehoahaz which was uh, King Josiah's son. It's kind of interesting. It was not his oldest son. Okay, there was an older son. But they the people chose Jehoahaz to be king. Well, Jehoahaz was pretty much a young idiot because... Pharaoh Necho, of course, as soon as he has things settled with Judah and they're out of their way, he continues marching upwards. Well, it's been about three months, and Pharaoh Necho has gone from here, which is where Jerusalem is, down here, and he's gone only about this far. Okay, He's camped out at a place called Ribla, up kind of west of Damascus. And he gets word that young King Jehoahaz, of course, Jehoahaz is 23. You know, he doesn't, he is young. He's decided he's not paying the tribute. Thank you very much. So what does Pharaoh Necho do? He goes right back down there, straighten him out. He actually, what happens is he has, Jehoahaz, captured, carts them. They bring him back up to Ribla, where Pharaoh Necho is. Pharaoh Necho binds him in chains and sends him to Egypt, where he he ultimately dies. And in his place, Pharaoh Necho establishes his brother, not Necho's brother, but his brother, Eliakim becomes king. Now he's the brother that's a little older. He's about 25 years old. And Pharaoh Necho changes his name. So his name is now Jehoiakim. Okay. All these Jehos are really hard to keep track of, but it doesn't really matter. They don't last long. This, that first one lasted three months. This one's going to last about 11 years, but Pharaoh Necho, um, continues to head toward Karshimish and and the very first thing King Jehoiakim did was raise taxes to pay that tribute because he saw what happened to his brother. Alright, so he is gonna pay the pay the taxes. So now we're gonna flip over to Jeremiah chapter 26. We're gonna skip around in Jeremiah a lot from here on out, just like I said, and and the reason is we can tell in Jeremiah which prophecies happened during which king's reign, because the prophecy will refer to the king or to some event, so we can date it. But within that king's reign, we can't really tell the order of the individual prophecies, okay? So scholars can lump the prophecies kind of by king, all right? So within that, I'm taking poetic license, and I am ordering the prophecies in a way That makes sense and tells you the story of what happened. Okay, so just realize that that this is not scientific. This is just uh, there is some reading between the lines here. So we're in Jeremiah twenty-six. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was curious about you know all these war campaigns, all all this stuff in the Bible, or any other taken from like secular history. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. You should ask that man. It's like I planted you or something. I I really didn't, but. (laughs) But let me pass this around. This is a picture of a cuneiform tablet that is actually in the British Museum. And it re- it is a record, a Babylonian record of the events of these Babylonian kings' reigns and of these battles. And it is through that that I am, that I know many of the details I'm giving you. So I see in the Bible the, the side that happens in Israel and Judah. Um, and in the Bible, it does mention the names of some of these foreign kings like Pharaoh Necho, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, Tiglath-Pileser in Assyria. There's some of them are mentioned. So we can kind of triangulate. Um, but many of the details we actually have from extra biblical sources from actual history. So you can take a look at the scratching, and if you can read ancient Babylonian, you can, you can read for yourself what happened. All right, so are you applying you can read ancient Babylonian? Yeah, as long as it's translated into English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a question on uh-huh. how the people were able to choose the younger brother to be the king when. Usually it's the oldest one, and that's kind of like what's written in, you know, their, I guess, their right. constitutions typically. When Normally, called. but that's not the way the nation of Israel ever worked. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It, it never worked like English law. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, and all I don't... through the
0: Bible and all through the Beatitudes, the it's always, they only mentioned the oldest son. Yeah. And then they had other boys and other girls or other men yeah. and other women or other male and female children. And then they always mention the oldest son, and then to the next oldest son throughout the, that mm-hmm. whole era. So, why is there a change here? There's the not a world. change here. They mention that in the genealogy. That's not how kingship passed. If you um, read how the, the kings passed, um, as far as I understand, you know, I can go back and check my facts, but the way I read it, Each king was allowed to pick his successor from among his sons, yes. So the people didn't have anything to do with it. Well, in this case, the king died, so the people had to do it. Okay? The king died, King Josiah died when he was 39. It was an untimely death. He had not selected a a successor. Or, possibly, he had selected this second son, and that's why he, he became king, and then later his older brother became king. But that was not a change suddenly, that that, that the, the Israelite kings never did go strictly to the oldest, as far as I can tell in the Bible. All right, verse 1, chapter 26. Early in the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, so this is that second, the, the 25-year-old son, this word came from the Lord. This is what the Lord says, and he's saying this to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, stand in the courtyard of the Lord's house and speak to all the people of the towns of Judah who come to worship in the house of the Lord. Tell them everything I command you. Do not omit a word. Perhaps they will listen and each will turn from his evil way. So even now the world is falling apart around them and still the Lord wants to save them. Then I will relent and not bring on them the disaster I was planning because of the evil they have done. Say to them, this is what the Lord says. If you do not listen to me and follow my law, which I have set before you, and if you do not listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I have sent to you again and again, though you have not listened, then I will make this house like Shiloh and this city an object of cursing among all the nations of the earth. He'll make them like Shiloh, I never heard of Shiloh, what Shiloh, you know, what is he talking about? Well, let's take a side trip back into the history of Judah and Israel to see why the Lord thought Shiloh was so significant. Back before, this is before Israel and Judah even split up, before the civil war. It was before the kings, it was before Solomon, before David, it was before Saul, who was the first king of Egypt. It was back in the time of the judges. The very last judge of Israel was Samuel. He was the prophet that actually ended up anointing Saul, the first king of Israel. And Samuel was kind of special because his mother had dedicated him to the Lord from birth. So after he was weaned, which at that time was probably around the age of three, um, she brought him to the temple. It wasn't really a temple yet because there hadn't been a king. They were still in the tent, so they were still in the tabernacle. (coughs) And that tabernacle had been set up at a little town called Shiloh. Well, the priest at that time, his name was Eli, and he had two sons, and their names were were Hophni and Phinehas, and those sons were bad news. The way the Lord had set things up to work was whenever the Israelites would bring um, offerings, the priests were given particular parts of those offerings by the word of the Lord because the priests were never allowed to own property. okay? They could live in towns. There were towns they could live in, but they had no way to make a living. That sounds like the Levites. In the way. It is the Levites. The Levites were the priests by definition. It was, the priests came from the Levites. The Levites as a whole, as a tribe, had different functions, but they were all related to temple worship, okay? Some were singers, some were gatekeepers, quote guards, okay? Some were priests, all right? So at this time, what had happened was Eli and, Eli was an older man, and he was apparently obese. So it didn't sound like he moved a lot. Um, and his sons did most of the work. But what they had taken to doing was whenever the um, Israelites would bring their sacrifices, they would put them in a big pot to boil them as they were supposed to. And the priests were supposed to get part of this boiled meat to live on. And so they had designed a three-ponged fork. They just didn't have a regular fork that they dip in to get what they, what they want. They had the special scooper fork that would get in and get big hunks of meat out. Um, and that would be what they kept. Well, they got so greedy that they would not even allow the Israelites to finish making their sacrifice. They would say, give us some meat up front. We're hungry. We're going to go do a barbecue here while you're boiling your meat. We don't want to wait around. Well, the Lord saw this and was extremely angry about this. This stuff is holy to the Lord. This meat was holy to the Lord. It was an offering to the Lord. It was not an offering to Hophni and Phinehas. So one night when Samuel was a little kid, he was sleeping. He finished all his chores. He'd done his sweeping and everything and went to sleep. And he got woken up because he heard Eli calling him and said, Samuel, Samuel. So he hops out of bed and he goes in and he says, what do you want, Eli? And Eli says, I didn't, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So Samuel goes back to bed. Happens again. Samuel, you know, Samuel, I'm calling you. Samuel hops up. And he goes. <coughs> Eli says, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. You're hearing things. Well, the third, by the third time this happens Eli is wide awake, right? And he's trying to figure out what in the heck is going on. Well, he figures out the Lord is calling Samuel. And so the third time Samuel comes, Eli says, go back to bed, Samuel. But this time, when you hear that voice calling you, say, here I am, Lord. And so Samuel did that. And the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, Samuel, the time has come. For me to fulfill the prophecies against Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. Well, Samuel, even as a child, knew what those prophecies were. You see, there had been a prophet that had come to the house of God some years earlier and had told Eli that the Lord was angry with how his sons were handling the sacrifices and the fact that they disrespected the Lord. And stole from the offerings. And that because of that. Both of his sons were going to die. In one day. And Eli himself was going to go blind. Well. You can imagine. That in the morning. After all this back and forth. Eli was sitting at the breakfast table. Wanting to know. What did the Lord say to you Samuel? And Samuel was afraid to tell him. Because the Lord had said, the time has come for you to go blind and your sons to get killed in one day. And Eli pressed Samuel and said, you know, no matter how bad it was, just tell me what the Lord said. And so Samuel told him the truth. And Eli said, you know what? He's the Lord. Let him do as he sees fit. So, sometime after that, the Israelites went into battle. Well, they were battling the Philistines. And if you remember, the Philistines were the really fierce people that lived in this coastal area. Okay? The Philistines had five jewel cities. In fact, they were likened to pearls on a string, was what they were called. There were five kind of king cities, king kingdom fiefdoms within their, their kingdom. So each one of those cities had a ruler. Well, they were constantly at war with the Israelites. And the Israelites went up to attack the Philistines and they lost. Now, the Israelites are not used to losing because the Lord goes before them in battle and their enemies just fall down miraculously, right? So that day they lost 4,000 men. So they come running back home with their tails between their legs and they say, oh, what did we do wrong? You know, they have a big council and they say, you know what? We forgot to take the Lord with us. Let's take the Ark of the Covenant into battle with us, which they shouldn't do anyway, because it's the Lord that goes into battle, not the box. Okay, but it just goes to show you how far gone they were that they said, ah, Go, call, the, call up those priests down in Shiloh and get them to get that ark up here pronto. So, Hophni and Phinehas, and you can see the writing on the wall, right? They take that Ark of the Covenant up. They bring it into battle the next day. The Philistines capture the ark, rout the Israelites, kill 30,000 soldiers. The army is decimated. The ark has been captured. Eli, by this time, has become completely blind. The news travels back to Eli that his sons, Hophni and Phineas, as you guessed, were both killed in that battle. And when Eli heard the news, he fell over backwards in his chair and broke his neck and died. All three of them died that day. And one of the boy's wives was pregnant. She went into labor prematurely and she died. So it was just really awful. Well, meantime, the Ark of the Covenant is is now in the hands of the Philistines for the first time ever. The Philistines take it to their capital city. They stuck it in their temple. They worshipped a god, an idol, not a god really, but an idol named Dagon. And they stuck the Ark, Ark of the Covenant into their temple next to Dagon. The next morning, when they went in to worship Dagon, Dagon's idol had fallen over face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. He said, oh, that's weird. So they set him back up. The next day they go in, not only has he fallen face down, but his his hands and his head are laying on the threshold of the door to the temple. And it says in the Bible, from that day forward, worshipers of Dagon never stepped on the threshold of their own temple. Meanwhile... The people start breaking out with tumors. Rats start running over the town. They get the bubonic plague. They said, send it away, send it away. So they send it up to the next of their five towns. People break out in tumors. Rats run over the town. Bubonic plague breaks out. Well, of course, they pass this arc on to the third town. The third town has a panic, they start having riots, they say, you got to get this out of here before it kills us all, so they come up with a plan, and they say, okay, we're going to build a brand new cart, we're going to hook to it two cows, we're going to lock their calves up so they can't, you know, go home to the farm, you know, and we're going to hook these cow- cows up to this cart, we're going to put the Ark of the Covenant in it, and we're going to put in five gold rats. As a sin offering, they called it a sin guilt offering to the God of the Israelites and five gold tumors. It's one for each of their towns and as an offering. And then they said, of course, you know, you got people telling them in their council, you're crazy. It's just a coincidence. You're overreacting. It's just, you know. So they agreed the five rulers would watch where the, the cows took the cart. They put them at a fork in the road. And they said, if that if those cows take that cart towards the Israelite city of Beth Shemesh, then we will know it was the God of the Israelites that did that. But if these cows head towards our lands and home, then we will know it was just a coincidence. Well, of course, the cows, they when they started out, they went directly to Beth Shemesh. They didn't stop, they didn't collect two hundred dollars, they didn't turn to the right or to the left, they went straight over there and the you know, and the Philistine ruler saw what happened and they knew that it was God that had done this so the the um, ark gets to Beth Shemesh and ultimately makes it to another town um, I think it's Curious Jerem, I can't remember and I assume that they also brought the tabernacle the tent covering up from Shiloh because the ark stayed in that town until David brought the tabernacle up to Jerusalem many years later Meanwhile, if you think back to what has happened to Shiloh, the Ark of the Covenant is gone. The priest is gone. His family is gone. The tabernacle is gone. So when the priest Jeremiah stands in the doorway of the temple and welcomes people to church by saying, if you do not repent and listen to the prophets, including me, your town will become like Shiloh. Them's fighting words. All right, it made the people mad because it implied they had been sinning like Hophni and Phineas had. All right, so look at verse eight. As soon as Jeremiah finished telling all the people everything the Lord had commanded him to say, the priests, the prophets, and all the people seized him and said, you must die. Why do you prophesy in the Lord's name that this house will be like Shiloh and this city will be desolate and deserted? And all the people crowded around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. Well, the officials of Judah, of course, the palace type people, they heard all the commotion going on in the temple. And they come running down. And when they got there, the priests and the prophets told them, the palace officials, that Jeremiah needed to be put to death. Now, these are false prophets. These are the prophets that have been telling the people peace when there is no peace, okay? These are the priests and their and sidekicks, the prophets, not, not Jeremiah. And this man should be sentenced to death because he's prophesied against this city. You heard it with your own ears? Treason. Verse 12. Then Jeremiah said to all the officials and all the people... The Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city with all the things you have heard. Now reform your ways and your actions and obey the Lord your God. Then the Lord will relent and not bring the disaster he has pronounced against you. As for me, I am in your hands. Do with me whatever you think is good and right. Be assured, however, that if you put me to death, you will bring the guilt of innocent blood on yourselves and And on this city and on those who live in it. For in truth, the Lord has sent me to you to speak all these words in your hearing. And when I read that, it reminded me of the scene with the people and the priests and Pilate. When they were condemning Jesus. You know, he was standing alone saying the Lord sent me. I'm speaking the truth. You choose. Do with me what you will. Well, King, this was fairly bold, just as it was for Jesus. It was bold for Jeremiah to say, because King Jehoiakim had already murdered one of the prophets who had stood there in this same place and said exactly what Jeremiah said. And that story is. Uh, in a parenthesis in the, in, the, in the book of Jeremiah, in the same book, in verse 20 through 23. And it's a story about a prophet named Uriah, who stood there, did the pro- this same prophecy, and King Jehoiakim made orders to have him killed. Uriah escaped and went to Egypt, and King Jehoiakim pursued him there, had him pursued and murdered, all the way down in Egypt. They... They struck him down with a sword, and his body was thrown into the burial place of the common people. Yikes. Well, God had a purpose in Jesus, and that purpose involved being tortured to death. And Jesus was obedient to that purpose. And because of his obedience, we all have a chance to live. God had a purpose in Uriah, this little prophet that we just read about. He, he warrants, you know, four sentences in the Bible between parentheses. And God had a purpose for his life, and it involved death. It involved speaking the word and death. In both of those examples, the outcome was torture and death for the human being. But God's purpose was so much bigger than those men's lives. God was sending these men, both Jesus and Uriah and all of these people, Jeremiah, all these prophets. It didn't matter that people killed them. What mattered was that people had the opportunity to hear the message. And we need to have that kind of assurance that you're... If I am nothing but four sentences in history, between parentheses, and all it says was she spoke the word of the Lord and she died. A terrible death. That is worthwhile. You know what? There's nothing I could have ever done with my life that was worth more than that. That is the heart of God towards us. That's how much he cares about us. That he would sacrifice anyone else's life. Anyone that belonged to him. Uriah already had a place in the book of life. You know? Your Jeremiah had a place in the book of life. He was saved. And therefore, his life was expendable. You see that from God's perspective? because It was worth it to God. It will always be worth it to God to take our lives and lay them down if it means that that 99th sheep will be saved or even have a potential to be saved. And so when bad things happen to us, we need to remember to pull back and look at it from God's perspective. It's a very different perspective than we were raised to think about. But remember that at the beginning of Jeremiah's Ministry, God had promised to protect him. Remember that? So let's see what happens. Verse 17 Some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the entire assembly of people Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah. This is the Micah that's the book in the Bible, Micah, they're talking about. He told all the people of Judah, This is what the Lord Almighty says Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. And when he said that, did Hezekiah the king of Judah or anyone else in Judah put him to death? No. Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced among them? We are about to bring terrible disaster on ourselves. Because what happened back with King Hezekiah? Was he, was he was king, you know, quite a bit earlier than this. And th- it was in fact, it was at the time of King Hoshea of Israel, who was the last king of the ten northern tribes. And the Assyrians had come, and they had laid siege, and they had conquered the ten tribes of Israel and had carried them off into captivity. King Hezekiah was king in Judah at that point. And you know what happened next? Exactly what you'd think would happen. The Assyrian army marched themselves right over to Jerusalem and surrounded them. And King Hezekiah humbled himself before the Lord, tore his robes, went to the Lord repeatedly. There was some back and forth between him and the the Assyrian commander saying, the Assyrian commander was saying, give up, don't listen to the prophets. They're telling you lies. Your your God can't save you. You're out of your minds. We're going to do to you what you did. But we did to the 10 northern kingdoms, 10 northern tribes. So Hezekiah, Refused to believe him, and I and he sent and he and Isaiah the prophet encouraged Hezekiah to trust in the Lord and gave him words from the Lord saying the Lord is going to protect you. They went to sleep that night, and the next morning when the Assyrians, what was left of them, woke up, they discovered 185,000 dead Assyrian soldiers in their camp. So here in Jeremiah, the the elders of the people have stepped forward and said, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute, time out. Remember what happened back in King Hezekiah? Hezekiah, I mean, he said exactly these same things. The people relented, they were saved. You know, maybe we should give this a second thought. And it says in verse 24, Furthermore, Ahikam, son of Jephan, or Shaphan, supported Jeremiah. And so he was not handed over to the people to be put to death. Ahikam's support sealed the deal. Ahikam has been a major officer in the court through a number of, of kings' reigns by this time. So he's very right. influential. So when he threw his support against, Jer- towards Jeremiah and said, let's don't kill him, this is not a good idea, Jeremiah was spared. But, Life was really hard for Jeremiah. Emotionally, it was tough for him to keep having these visions of the absolute destruction of his people that he loved. You know, he actually saw in his head. He saw visions of what was going to happen. And it was horrible what was going to happen if they did not repent. And and now the Lord says, okay, we're going to start things rolling with a little drought. And... All the crops dried up. There's no water. He gives Jeremiah in verse 13 a prophecy saying, this is in Jeremiah 8, verse 13. Sorry, I'm starting to skip around now. Just one verse that says, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. You know, they forgot that everything they had was given to them from the Lord. He gives us the very air we breathe. He gives us the food we eat. It's not coming from Randall's and H-E-B. All right? It's coming from the hand of God. And sure enough, when the drought comes, the Lord continues to press Jeremiah to tell them, remind them that the drought is not an accident, that it's coming directly from the hand of the Lord. Jeremiah 14, verses 3 through 6. The nobles send their servants for water. They go to the cisterns, but find no water. Jeremiah 14.3 They return with their jars unfilled. Dismayed and despairing, they cover their heads. The ground is cracked because there is no rain in the land. The farmers are dismayed and covered their heads. Even the doe in the field deserts her newborn fawn because there is no grass. Wild donkeys stand on the barren heights and pant like jackals. Their eyesight fails for lack of pasture. And still, those false prophets, they keep pumping those people full of sunshine. Here's what they say. Tells them, you know, the Lord's going to send blessings on you. There's going to be peace in the all around. And which one are the people going to listen to? Jeremiah? Or the false prophets, which one you think they want to listen to. Well, that's the one they listen to. Jeremiah 14, 11. Then the Lord said to me, do not pray for the well-being of this people. Although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Because it's not coming from the heart. They're just like doing the motions. Okay. I will destroy them with sword, famine, and plague. But I said, Sovereign Lord, the prophets keep telling him you will not see the sword and suffer famine. Indeed, I will give you lasting peace in this place. And then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I have not sent them or appointed them or spoken to them. They are prophesying to you false visions, divinations, idolatries and delusions of their own minds. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the prophets who are prophesying in my name falsely i did not send them yet they are saying no sword or famine will touch this land those same prophets will perish by sword and famine and the people they are prophesying to will be thrown out into the streets of jerusalem because of famine and sword there will be no one to bury them their wives or their sons or their daughters i will pour out on them the calamity they deserve so jeremiah just weeps it says in the in in here in this book that he weeps and that's where you get the jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because he just felt this so keenly jeremiah seems to have had a little bit different personality makeup than many of the other prophets when when i think of prophets i think of people like the apostle paul you know the strong in personality, jut out his chin, and he's going to get it done no matter what. You know, he's tough. He can make tents. He can support himself, and he can still go out and and plant churches. And he's got the kind of personality that you associate with an entrepreneur or a CEO. Okay? And that's what I typically think of when I think of a prophet because they need that kind of, Of personal conviction, stance, strength, ability to stand up to people. But Jeremiah was a gentle man. (laughs) He felt this so keenly and he was hurt when people made fun of him. And he was hurt when the Lord sent him visions of all these terrible things that were gonna happen. And he just, he wept and he was bitter and he was miserable. But you know what? He had to do that in in private. Because the Lord had told him, when you're in front of the people, you be as hard as iron, Jeremiah. Don't you let them see weakness. Or I'm going to do to you what I'm going to do to them. You must put forth a face that is hard as iron. Jeremiah um, chapter 13, verse 15 To the people, Jeremiah would say, hear and pay attention. Do not be arrogant, for the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings the darkness, before your feet stumble on the darkening hills. You hope for light, but he will turn it to thick darkness and change it to deep gloom. But the next verse tells you exactly what he was feeling inside. Verse 17, but if you do not listen, I will weep in secret because of your pride my eyes will weep bitterly overflowing with tears because the Lord's flock will be taken captive. (laughs) But even though Jeremiah just poured tears out in the presence of the Lord in private, even in private, the Lord was stern with him. Chapter 15, verse one. Then the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel Were to stand before me. My heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. And if they ask you where shall I go. This is what the Lord says. Those destined for death. To death. Those for the sword. To the sword. Those for starvation. To (coughs) starvation. And those for captivity. Into captivity. And since Jeremiah. Had to keep his true feelings a secret. The people hated Jeremiah as much as they hated the Lord. And the Lord saw this and told Jeremiah, said, Jeremiah, don't trust anyone, even your friends and family. And sure enough, his supposed friends from his hometown of Anathoth plotted to kill him. And they threatened that if he didn't shut up, they would pursue him and kill him. Jeremiah 11 Chapter 11, verse 18. The Lord was on his side because the Lord revealed their plot to me. I knew it. For at that time, he showed me what they were doing. I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more but oh lord almighty you who judge righteously and test the heart and mind let me see your vengeance upon them for to you i have committed my cause i mean you know he's just you can imagine how bitter jeremiah felt when his own hometown buds from high school plotted to kill him you know your heart they're your best friends they're practically family they're probably some of them more family and jeremiah says you know lord Put them on the list, okay? (laughs) You know, if I can't fight back, will you just remember them when the time comes? And of course, the Lord would remember them when the time comes. Verse 21. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the men of Anathoth, who are seeking your life and saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hands. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish them. Their young men will die by the sword. Their sons and daughters by famine, not even a remnant will be left to them because I will bring disaster on the men of Anathoth in the year of their punishment. So Jeremiah was not even safe in his hometown. And the Lord actually (coughs) warned him never to marry or to have children because they would not be safe from harm. Now we're up to Jeremiah 16, chapter 16, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me. You must not marry and have sons or daughters in this place. For this is what the Lord says about the sons and daughters born in this land and about the women who are their mothers and the men who are their fathers. They will die of deadly diseases. They will not be mourned or buried, but will be like garbage lying on the ground. They will perish by sword and famine, and their dead bodies will become food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. So he's telling Jeremiah here, this is going to happen in your lifetime. That's what he's saying, saying, don't don't marry and don't have kids because this is going to happen in your lifetime. Then the Lord told him to stay home from the funerals of friends and family as a kind of protest and as a symbol. Verse five of chapter 16, for this is what the Lord says. Do not enter a house where there is a funeral meal and do not go to mourn or show sympathy because I have withdrawn my blessing, my love and my pity from this people, declares the Lord. Turn that around, though, in your heart. What that says is normally, the normal relationship between us and our Lord is that when we are gathering for a funeral, the Lord's blessing, his love, and his pity are among us. He's there. Well, it was bad enough that he couldn't go to funerals. You know, I wouldn't mind skipping a few funerals myself, but he couldn't go to the weddings either. Verse 8, And do not enter a house where there is feasting, and sit down to eat and drink. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, Before your eyes and in your days I will bring an end to the sound of joy and gladness and to the voices of bride and bridegroom in this place. Poor Jeremiah, he wished he was dead. He was so miserable. Chapter 20, verse 14. We get a glimpse into Jeremiah's heart chapter 20, verse 14. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, a child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning and a battle cry at noon. For he did not kill me in the womb with my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and end my days in shame? Well, things went from bad to worse for Jeremiah. The Lord didn't let up the pace at all. He told Jeremiah, in fact, to go buy himself a new belt. Well, back then, the belts weren't made out of leather like they are now. They were made out of cloth. They are made out of linen. So Jeremiah goes, pots down to the little marketplace, and he buys himself a brand new linen belt, and the Lord says, put it on and wear it. So Jeremiah doesn't know what this is about, but he does it. And after a couple days, the Lord says, you know that new belt you're so proud of? Take it off. Take it down to the river. Find some rocks. Stuff it under some rocks right in the water and leave it for a few days. So poor Jeremiah had to take his brand new belt and go stuff it in the river. And of course, when the Lord told him to go dig it up again, it was ruined. You can imagine. You know exactly what happens to fabric when it's been wet, left in the hot sunshine, right? It just crumbles when you pick it up again. And and the Lord said, okay, Jeremiah, got that picture in your head? Now, go tell the people this. Chapter 13, verse 9. This is what the Lord says. In the same way, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts and go after other gods to serve and worship them, will be like this belt, completely useless. For as a belt is bound around a man's waist, so I bound the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to me, declares the Lord, to be my people for my renown and praise and honor. But they have not listened. Well, that was bad enough. But the Lord seems to like go out of his way to make Jeremiah look foolish to the people. And Jeremiah is sensitive He's one of those, Jeremiah is not a CEO type. He's more of like a professor. He he would have been more comfortable being an artist or or an academic than he would with all this nonsense. And he, it really bothers him. So the next thing the Lord made him do is in the very next verse of chapter 13, in verse 12. Say to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. Every wineskin should be filled with wine. So Jeremiah goes out and says, every wineskin should be filled with wine. And they say, duh. And the Lord says, when they say, duh, here's what you say back to them. Tell them, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to fill with drunkenness all who live in this land, including the kings who sit on David's throne, the priests, the prophets, and all those living in Jerusalem. I will smash them one against the other, fathers and sons alike, declares the Lord. I will allow no pity or mercy or compassion to keep me from destroying them. And he, the Lord has Jeremiah running all over this town. Next, he has to go to every gate going in and out of Jerusalem, stand there on Saturday and tell the people to stop carrying burdens in and out of the city on Sabbath. Okay? And he has to do that at every single gate. So then... This one is one of the most... It's probably the most famous object lesson in Jeremiah. And that is of the potter. Jeremiah, the Lord told Jeremiah to go down to the potter's house. So Jeremiah went down to the He didn't tell him what to do. Just so, Jeremiah went down to the potter's house. Well, if you've ever seen somebody throwing pots, they do it on a wheel and it's, and it's going around really fast. They're pedaling it like a treadle sewing machine. They're pedaling this wheel. It's going around fast. They wet their hands, they wet the wheel, they wet a lump of clay, and they slop it onto that wheel. And as the wheel spins, they just gradually, gently move their hands. And as they just delicately move their hands, they're able to just form that pot. it looks like that pot is growing. And when they're ready to do the insides, they just put a finger down here and begin to just very gently roll it around like this, and the, the insides of the pot become shaped. And then all of a sudden, as Jeremiah was watching, the pot went, and it got messed up. That happens all the time. Well, it's no big deal. The potter just wet his hands, grabbed that lump of clay, wet it down, and slopped it back on there and started over again. And this time he made a different pot. And the Lord said, Jeremiah, did you notice that? Here's what you say to the house of Israel. Chapter 18, verse 6. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter does, declares the Lord, like clay in the hand of a potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Now, therefore, say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, This is what the Lord says. Look, I am preparing a disaster for you. And devising a plan against you, so turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. But they will reply, Ah, it's no use. We'll continue with our own plans. Each of us will follow the stubbornness of our own heart. And And then there was a time that the Lord sent Jeremiah back to that potter's house. And this time he said, Buy a pot. So Jeremiah bought a pot. Said, go get as many of the priests and elders and people, you know, the ruler types, as you can scrounge up and have them, you know, come on a little field trip with you. So you can just imagine what those people were saying to Jeremiah as he led them out of town with this pot in his hand. Jeremiah 19, verse 3. When they got out of town, here's what Jeremiah said Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and people of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Listen, I am going to bring a disaster on this place that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. Oh my gosh. Those people would have so recognized that verse. That is a direct quote from what the Lord told Samuel about Shiloh. He says, I'm fixing to do something. It's going to make the ears of the people tingle. And it wasn't a good tingle. It was a shaking kind of tingle. It was a fear tingle. So if I'm Jeremiah, I remember what happened the last time I mentioned Shiloh. You know, but he, no matter what, even though it was a close call last time, he goes ahead and he says exactly what the Lord tells him. And he quotes that. Verse 4, for they, this is the Lord continuing to talk, for they have forsaken me and made this place, a place of foreign gods, and they have burned sacrifices in it to gods that neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah ever knew. And they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. They have built high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention, nor did it even enter my mind. So beware, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the people will no longer call this place Topheth, Or the Valley of Ben-Hemen, which is where they did these child sacrifices. It was right outside the gate of Jerusalem. But the Valley of Slaughter. In this place, I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies at the hands of those who seek their lives. I will give their carcasses as food to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. I will devastate this city and make it an object of scorn. All who pass by will be appalled and will scoff because of all its wounds. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters. They will be so hungry during the siege. They will eat one another's flesh during the stress of the siege imposed on them by the enemies who seek their lives. And then, Jeremiah, break the jar while those who go with you are watching and say to them, This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. They will bury the dead in Topheth until there's no more room. And this is what I will do to this place and those who live here, declares the Lord. I will make this city like Topheth. The houses in Jerusalem and those of the kings of Judah will be defiled in this place. All the houses where they burned incense on the roofs to all the starry hosts and poured out drink offerings to other gods. Well, of course, that did not sit well with the elders and the priests. And to make matters worse... Jeremiah went back to town with him, went directly to the temple, and stood right in the middle of the temple courtyard and started hollering about how the Lord was going to bring disaster on Jerusalem because all of the people were stiff-necked. Well, (coughs) he nearly caused a riot. There was a guy named Pashur, who was the son of the, the guy in charge of the temple, the temple official, And you kind of get the impression that Pashur and Jeremiah might be of a similar age. And Pashur is full of himself. He is important. He has the power. And he goes up to Jeremiah and says, cease and desist. Stop this. Well, Jeremiah, of course, did not cease and desist. So Pashur had Jeremiah arrested, taken right outside the temple, and put into stocks overnight. You know, like they the those big wooden things with the holes for your arms and your and your head he had Jer- there were some very conveniently located right outside the temple and he had jeremiah put in them locked up overnight and in the morning when jeremiah when Pashur came back to unlock jeremiah and let him out of course jeremiah was furious jeremiah was spitting nails he had been mortified people made fun of him he had been miserable and he had just been Doing What the Lord told him, can you imagine the conversation Jeremiah and the Lord had that night? Um, you know, poor Jeremiah. And so Jeremiah says to Pashur, the Lord's name for you is no longer Pashur. But it's terror on every side, because because of what you have done, you will cause terror for you, your family, and all of your friends. They will all die by the sword, and you will be carried off to captivity in Babylon, where you will die because you have prophesied lies. Well, all of that was true, but unfortunately for Jeremiah, the name terror on every side did not stick to Pashur. It stuck to Jeremiah. The people started calling him Mr. Terror on every side because of his message. <laughs> Jeremiah, it, he was done. He was through. He, he was tired of being a prophet. Thank you very much. And he rebelled. He just made up his mind to stop prophesying. He's going to keep his mouth shut. If they hadn't got it by now, they weren't going to get it. He was done with this. It didn't work. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. But if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name... His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Let's report him. Let's report him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. Jeremiah has hit a low point. He's depressed. He's persecuted. He's He's lonely, and even when he's rebelling, he can't stop prophesying because physically it burns inside of him. So he cries out to the Lord, and and we're going to pretty much end with this passage. Jeremiah 15, verse 15. You understand, O Lord. Remember me and care for me. Avenge me on my persecutors. You are long-suffering. Do not take me away. Think of how I suffer reproach for your sake. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy, my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. I never sat in the company of revelers, never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me, and you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? Will you be to me like a deceptive brook, like a spring that fails? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. And this is what the Lord is saying to Jeremiah after his rebellion. If you repent, I will restore you that you may serve me. If you utter worthy, not worthless words, you will be my spokesman. Let this people turn to you, but you must not turn to them. I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but not overcome you. For I am with you to rescue you and save you, declares the Lord. I will save you from the hands of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the cruel. So Jeremiah repents of his rebellion. He's forgiven. He's bruised, but not broken. And the Lord has promised to save him. We're going to stop there.